Colleges across the United States are under fire for their response to the attack on Israel on October 7th by Hamas. Many colleges put out a lot of statements in support or against many different things, and yet on this one they seem to be a little hesitant, which ruffled the feathers of many of their major donors who are now pulling their support. To talk about this, my guest today is Neetu Arnold, who is a research fellow at the National Association of Scholars and a Young Voices contributor. And we talk a little bit about what this means. Is this the Bud Light moment for major education and will we see reform? And we also talk a little bit about student loan reform. Me Too was my guest last time before a lot of the student loan reform started to go through. And so we talk a little bit about trade-offs and what it will mean with Joe Biden's new plans for helping your student go to college. So stay tuned for that right here on The Chris Spangle Show. We run on the value for value model here on The Chris Spangle Show and the We Are Libertarians podcast network. That means, do you get value out of the show? Do you learn something that helps you sound smarter when talking with your friends? Do you feel a little bit more connected to the world and inspired to do something a little bit differently? Well, then please give some value back. And the best way that you can do that is through our Patreon. You can go to supportcss.com or patreon.com slash libertarians, and you can join our Patreon. Not only do you support the program and the entire We Are Libertarians podcast network by helping pay all of the bills, you're also going to get ad-free shows. You're going to get early releases, sometimes months in advance in terms of episodes that haven't been released in the public feed yet. You'll also be able to get the full archives, the full RSS feed of all the past episodes and there's even a tier that you can come on the show or you can have your name mentioned every episode like i am about to do right now thank you so much to our 100 a month members especially vincent pycole matthew durbin jason doolittle christy avery and our good friend reinhold thank you so much for supporting us and we appreciate everybody that considers making a contribution today need to arnold thank you so much for joining me Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back on. So my wife, I'm very lucky. I married someone that enjoys watching the news and documentaries and all the things that I enjoy doing. And we, I think a lot of people have just watched a lot of the news over the last month and been horrified, horrified by the tragedies in Israel, the tragedies in Palestine. But I think it hit a new peak we're recording this on halloween october 31st will air next week but uh to see a an attempted pogrom in russia and to see and to go oh that's just russia but then you start looking on instagram and go oh new orleans chicago columbia university harvard and some of the response to this i think has been quite shocking you're a little bit closer to the college age than i am i'm 20 years out has it been surprising to you, the reaction to October 7th? What happened in Israel was absolutely horrifying. I remember going through social media. I actually took a little bit of time off just to absorb what was going on. I, I know it seems like it's so far away, but whatever happened there could very easily happen here. That could have happened to our friends or our family members. And it, it was absolutely horrifying what happened. And I I wasn't too shocked by necessarily the reaction by campus student groups. This is something that I even saw on my own campus at Cornell. And I talked a little bit about that in my national review article that I know we're discussing. But 
I was more shocked by the university's response. Uh, Ideally, I would want universities to not comment on current event issues to maintain political neutrality so that these kinds of discussions can happen on campus. But they've set a precedent where they responded to the death of George Floyd. They even responded to Russia, Ukraine. So when you have this sort of unprovoked attack in Israel, you would think that they would respond to that, especially when many members of their campus community could have very well been affected by this. So the fact that some of them were very slow, they just did not respond uh, until there was public backlash. I think their slow response, some of the responses were botched. They, they just couldn't admit that this was an attack by Hamas, that it could be condemned. And what I particularly was shocked by was how quickly these schools were willing to just jump behind free speech to justify their pretty bad responses. Because many of these campuses, they haven't been super friendly to free speech. We've heard about speech restrictions, student censorship. If you don't have the right views, you can get suspended or fired. It it was quite shocking that they just decided to jump behind free expression out of convenience. Yeah, that's a weird quirk in society now where it developed really over the last five to, to six years, it feels like, where every company, organization, university, individual feels that they have to be their own PR agency. And there have been so many issues that, that colleges are eager to speak on when they can tut the right, really, But when it comes to issues that are horrible on their own side or people that they may be aligned with or people that I'm not, I don't, let me clean that up. Hamas is Hamas. Palestinians are Palestinians. People who feel a certain way about Palestinians and their treatment are a different group than people who support Hamas. And I think it's very easy for that to get confused. Sure. So is that the hesitancy? Is that the the feeling that if we speak out, and say Israel is bad, or Israel, what happened to Israel is a tragedy, that somehow we're implicitly saying that we agree? I, I don't, uh, what is the hesitancy? Have, have Has anybody really found out what was the hesitancy to speak out? So I think they've been weighing a lot of different issues on this particular issue. I think if they say we condemn Hamas's attacks, There are going to be people on campus, particularly the extreme left-wing bloc that also supports Palestinian rights, as they would say. And some of them are even chanting to the river, to the sea, Palestine be free, something like that. And uh, they think that if they show some kind of sympathy of what happened in Israel, that somehow that they are taking Israel's side here, which I think is a little bit disturbing. That's the sort of Uh, conclusion that we're getting from all of this instead of simply some this horrific attack happened the way in which it happened was also just horrifying random concert goers who had nothing to do with Hamas like they were targets and it it should be very simple to condemn terrorism it that should be a simple concept and so I think some of it may have come from the fact that this can be a sensitive issue and they didn't know what to do it's very possible that there are people some members of the administration maybe they side more with Palestine than Israel so they're more anti-Israel but 
I, I think this had more to do with just not wanting to upset students on campus. I think they're more afraid from a left-wing backlash than those either from the right or uh, from the pro-Israel side. How much of it, now I know you work in the educational field and we had originally booked to talk about student loans and maybe right. we'll, we'll get to talk about that if we have enough of your time. Um, how much of it is the generational cliff that is heading for colleges where there aren't going to be enough students because there aren't enough kids. And so they're just trying to to save every dollar, save every student, not lose students. How much of it is economic in the, the fact that the majority of college educated people are now left leaning and anything that's perceived, it, it's more, it's less ideological, it's less courageous, it's less about making a stand. And really it's about economic protection versus what's moral or not? I think that's an interesting question. I would want to give more thought to it, but my immediate reaction right now is just based on what I've been seeing. The reaction seemed more emotional, not out of concern for the economic concerns. If there was any economic concerns here, it was the way the university started to respond on this issue because there was donor pressure. So I think that pressure is coming more from the other side, not so much from the student reaction. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So let's just pick a specific school. Let's pick Harvard, which is the one that everybody's talking about. What was Harvard's reaction to October 7th? And then what was the donor reaction to their reaction? Yeah. So I actually, there are two schools here. And I think the one that's getting a lot more attention is actually the University of Pennsylvania. But Harvard, there are a couple of issues happening there. They took a long time to respond So that's issue one. There are several student groups on campus that issued a statement that was essentially justifying the attacks or at least diminishing the response. It was a lot of this is it's blowback. If you treat people a certain way, then you get what you deserve. And that was the immediate response. One thing that's bothered me about uh, you'll hear we need to provide context on this issue. Uh, I'm normally fine with providing context, providing background on why there might be a conflict. But if that's your first reaction to something like this happening, it's usually meant to diminish and perhaps justify. So then there is that reaction. There were some donors that simply said, okay, we don't want to hire any of these students who signed these statements. So that there was backlash from that perspective. I believe the Wexner Foundation pulled their funds outright. There were some people who were sitting on uh, boards, I think, for the Harvard Kennedy School who also pulled out. They were not happy with Harvard's response. I mentioned the University of Pennsylvania earlier because uh, there's actually been a much larger donor backlash from the University of Pennsylvania. Many of these people were associated with the Wharton School, which is the well-known business school at Penn. And they were not happy for a variety of reasons. There was a Palestinian literature conference or festival earlier this month, and there were apparently anti-Semitic remarks, which the donors were not happy about. And they felt like the university had not addressed that situation adequately. And then when this situation occurs, the, the attacks the university did not give a, again, they didn't give an adequate response. And so the donors essentially said, we've had enough and we're pulling out. Yes. Yeah, so I think this brings up a couple different principles, right? 
what's the line between speech and what's the line between free speech and encouraging hate, which I think is something we've dealt with for the last decade in in a different way than a lot of generations in human history have. And at what point does this become cancel culture, right? Like, hey, you said something I don't like. I'm going to take my endowment back or take my donation back. It's and is cancel culture just complete nonsense that is made up to motivate votes. But that could be a whole other discussion. But I think that's an important piece of this, right, is what's the line between free speech? Because I look at it and go, all right, have a free Palestine poetry festival, but also your words have consequences. And when something like this happens, then people might hold you accountable for that free speech. That's an interesting point to bring up here. And I think what's frustrating about this whole conversation is that this whole situation is that the universities have pretty much picked and choose chosen when they apply free speech. And so there isn't a consistent standard. So it seems like sometimes the universities will support free speech when it is beneficial and convenient to them. And then other times they will go, if somebody gets canceled for saying a view they didn't like, they're not going to do anything. And one, one point I make in my article is that the donors who have pulled their funds over this one issue are not necessarily going to change the campus environment, not unless they're willing to tie their their funds with substantial changes to campus, getting rid of the DEI bureaucracies, which are essentially going against free speech principles. You have to have the right views in order to get hired. That's absolutely ridiculous. You know, it, and that's where I think donors can use the power of their purse to ensure that the campus environment is free for all views. And I think if we allowed free speech, like to its fullest, then we could have a healthier conversation on this and it wouldn't appear as if the university is picking and choosing winners. Yeah, I found the my feed is heavily tilted towards the Palestinian side. Palestinians, less Hamas, right? Although there is some of that. I'm an anti-war libertarian and have been for a long time. Ron Paul steeped in 2007, way back when you were in diapers, me too. I was against the war, <laughs> right? I was a 2004 college Republican president pro-war rally 2003. And then I just changed my mind. And so that's like my feed is being a libertarian for a long time. It's very tilted against Israel. Part of that is the anti-Semitism of some of the anti-war movement and some of the anti-federal reserve movement. And so I found it very helpful to go and seek out Dan Senor's podcast or Barry Weiss and hear the Israeli perspective because I'm not getting that. And it, it, it creates this mental challenge of like trying to figure out, okay, I see both sides of this. And that, to me, is the way that it ought to be. But that does not seem to be the way that college operates now. It does not seem to be a free-flowing back and forth where IUPUI in 2004 let me show Fahrenheit 9-11 by Michael Moore and Fahrenheit 9-11, which was the anti-Michael Moore documentary, and people came to the university theater to watch it because they didn't want to pay Michael Moore or the other side. Right. So uh, is DEI like a main contributor to that? I had a friend who wanted to apply to a college, looked at the application process and said, there's just no way I'll ever get in. (laughs) He, He just didn't even bother with it because he knew that just wasn't going to be an avenue for him. Are they, is the hiring process specifically tilted to an ideological bias? 
Yes, the principles of diversity, equity, inclusion, it sounds innocent, it sounds nice, but what it's really turned into is the sort of political litmus test where you have to espouse progressive viewpoints, the oppressor versus oppressed lens, especially on the Israel-Palestinian issue. Israel is the oppressor, Palestinians are oppressed, and this is something that you'll even see in the courses talking about this. This is something that I looked into for the National Association of Scholars. I did a deep dive on Middle East studies departments in the country. And some of these departments are receiving federal funds. The purpose is for building our national security apparatus, making sure that it's strong. We have people who know foreign languages, who know those cultures pretty accurately, but this is what they're resorting to. They're inculcating some of these lenses into the way we view some real issues. And I think that's why when when we look at the discourse on this uh, online or in person, it's quite distorted. It's quite hostile, I would say. Like there, there really is not a fairness in how this is being discussed. And I think the DEI ideology here is affecting that. You brought up your friend who felt like they really couldn't apply. They thought that their identity might that would be a 50 something white year old white uh, libertarian just looked at the college and said, there's just no way. Right. And I think the fact that you even have to worry that the way you look, your identity would affect how you would do in college for academics. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And on the other hand, I believe in diversity. I believe that we need to have diverse thought diverse diversity of all kinds right so if donors start to look at colleges and say dei is the problem it's creating litmus tests as opposed to diversity equity and inclusion is there a better model of diversity and inclusiveness that could be used to make sure that different voices are represented like how do we take those principles without while tossing out some of the more extreme elements I think there's a misconception on diversity. Just because people look different, so we have different races, different ethnicities, we assume that people will think differently, and that's not necessarily the case. Uh, You can have people of the same race, they look the same, and they could have differing views. So I think if we actually allowed uh, diversity of thought, we could be having these more thoughtful discussions. I would think that if that's a value, we have diversity of thought, then I don't know. The people I've seen who tend to value diversity of thought, they tend to be more thoughtful people in general, and they're more tolerant. And that I think is part of inclusion. We should be including different voices, but I don't think that should be a mandate. I think these kinds of ideals will naturally come, but it has to be with diversity of thought. If we're canceling people because they have different thoughts, and I, I don't really see that as a thoughtful or inclusive policy. Yeah, I think you nailed the Marxian view of this. Oppressors and oppressed. Colonialism seems, seems to be a huge part of this. Colonization. Decolonization. This I, I watched one TikTok of this woman talking about what did you think decolonization looked like? I'm like, if it is putting babies in an oven while the mother is raped next to the oven as her baby dies, then I'm not for decolonization. You had me and up until October 7th, and now you look at it, and, and, and I heard one commentator say that this was the month that wokeness died. That's the first time I've ever right. said that. That's the first time I've ever said that word on the show because I think it's a ridiculous word. 
But overused at this I, point. I do think there are a lot of people who are left leaning, looking at this, going, "Okay, if this is where the college campuses are, the from the river to the sea, and this is what decolonization looks like, and this is how Americans are thinking, how professors are thinking." I'm rethinking all of these views, almost like I had an epiphany on January 6th going, oh, what's my libertarianism contributing to? Because it has real consequences, right? I think people who are more left-leaning are going, is this the week that my view of decolonization changed? Because that's not what I'm for. What have you seen out there along those lines? I've seen similar things to what you've just mentioned. When decolonization essentially means killing your oppressor through any means necessary, I think a lot of people have found the response by various groups and especially universities as clarifying. It shouldn't be hard to condemn terrorism. Again, it shouldn't be that hard. And the fact that they struggled with that, but they didn't struggle with other kinds of statements this this is all a horrible situation, but this is light that people are waking up. They are paying more attention, but it's important that they are reexamining many of their other views, many of the other things that they thought they believed, and maybe they won't anymore, or at least it needs to be challenged and refined. But I think that's a bright spot in all of this. I saw today that Bud Light is coming up with a billion dollars to do stock buybacks. The single can that they printed for Dylan Mulvaney has cost them billions of dollars, 24% of their market share. And I think that was a significant moment for brands in thinking about, do we have to make these statements to make everyone happy? Because we're not making anybody happy and it's costing us money. And that's our job as a company is to make money. Is this kind of a Bud Light moment for donors at universities where they start to really look at where their money's going in a much serious much more serious way and start to demand changes or do you think that the moment will pass and the news cycle go on to something else hmm i think it depends again on how they're conditioning their funds what they're telling their universities when they're thinking of pulling their funds if they're just pressuring the university to get one statement right even though this is an important statement but if they're just doing that and they're not even asking the universities to become more politically neutral to actually examine the problems on campus, then unfortunately, I do see this as this is a big moment that happens. And then a couple of weeks will go by and this will just be another moment in history. And that's that. So again, I think it's so important that donors are willing to look very closely at the university, even if they haven't made a decision right now, maybe they are quietly looking at the other practices and but, but again, I think money talks here and they have a lot more power than they may realize. It might seem harsh pulling funds, uh, but the way I look at this is if you really love your institution, you want other students to have the experiences that you had, then you have to recognize that these campuses are not the same that you the, the experiences you've had. It's much worse and it needs to be fixed. And I think the donors have a lot of power to curb back some of the more toxic elements we're seeing on campus. Okay. Before we shift gears to student loans, is there anything that you want to add to this particular topic that I forgot to ask you? 
No, I think we covered quite a bit and I'm, I'm quite pleased with this conversation. I think we got through a lot of the important points. And again, I really hope that the donors are looking at this more seriously, that they're willing to tie their donations and their funds to substantial campus reform. It's always nice to hear a guest say they're pleased with a conversation with me. It's just so rare. Me too. Thank you very much. So let's talk student loans because, again, I'm a very selfish, self-centered individual. So everything, I filter everything through how I experience the world. I don't think I'm unique, but that's just how it is. And I have a friend, a very dear friend who had their student loans forgiven. I've seen a few people online who had loans that were older than 20 years get forgiven. They didn't sign up for anything. The loans just got forgiven. So what is happening out there in the world of student loan forgiveness that I think when we last spoke a long time ago, we talked about the proposal, right? But now it's rolling out. So what has been happening in student loan forgiveness? Give us the 10,000 foot view here. The Biden administration did try to pass student loan forgiveness that did not go through the courts. That was actually... Right. That's what I remember. And then all of a sudden, my friend's getting their loan forgiven. What the heck? Okay, I am wondering how it's getting forgiven. I don't know if they qualified for a certain program or if they've signed up for the new income-driven repayment program by the Biden administration, which is called the SAVE program, Saving on a Valuable Education. That's what that means. I would need to know more details to comment on that, but... I can talk about the SAVE program. So this is one of the new rollouts by the Biden administration. It's actually going to be more, it could be more costly than even debt forgiveness. It's expected to cost 550, yeah, $550 billion over 10 years. And really what this program is going to do, it's another kind of income-driven repayment program. So those kind of payments or those kind of programs consider your income to determine how much you're paying per month and your income increases or decreases, your payments can accordingly change. The idea behind these kinds of programs is to make it easier for people who aren't making as much money to repay their loans. Now, what the SAVE program is going to do, it's making a couple of key changes. And I think a good way to think about this is it's essentially changing how we think about a loan. I think it's making it more like a grant. A grant is something that you don't pay money back on. That is something you are given. A loan is typically something you would owe money on. But in this case, there's it's quite a generous program, which is why it's there are many forgiveness elements here. I mean, if so one of the key changes here is that an undergrad uh, well, an undergraduate loan payment will decrease instead of paying 10% of your disposable income, now it's going to go down to 5%. Uh, It's going to expand the number of borrowers who have to make $0 in monthly payments. And that $0 in a monthly payment will count as one payment towards your forgiveness. You have to make a certain number of payments over a certain number of years to receive that forgiveness. So again, there will be more borrowers who will simply not be paying anything per month. The interest will not accumulate on these loans. And if you have a lower balance, your loans would be forgiven faster instead of the typical 20, 25 year period. It almost sounds like the PPP loans where you sign up, you got your money and then you check a box and go, yeah, I used it correctly. And they go, "Okay, forgiven. (laughs) It sounds too good to be true almost. No, it's quite similar. And again, this is a very generous 
program. And maybe in the short term, the borrowers, this is clearly a benefit for the borrowers. But I think whenever we think about a policy change, it needs to consider various actors, not just one group of people. And given that a lot of people are not very happy with colleges, they're not... uh, a lot of people do not support the idea that you need to have a college degree in order to be successful in the career place or in the workplace. We have to ask if these costs are actually worth it. Is it worth keeping the higher education industrial complex afloat? Or like, how are we going to have changes? How are we going to make major changes if we're just going to continue to have these kinds of subsidies? Yeah, I think before we go to trade-offs, because I think that's a hugely important point, because just because you've changed the loan system, it doesn't mean you changed the system. Mm-hmm. I want to present to you some devil advocate questions. All, all right? right. So let's go back to my friend. So let's, this person is, says, look, I took these loans out 20 years ago and the loans just kept getting sold and sold. And then you wouldn't find out where they were. So you couldn't pay them down. And the system was created by Congress And they screwed all of this up. So why shouldn't I have my loans forgiven when Congress is the one that made this system? Congress is the one that messed this up. Congress is the one that made my interest balloon these loans nearly three times. Why shouldn't I get forgiveness? Yeah, again, I would need to know more details about what specifically happened with your friend, what kind of major job he's in now, especially to justify these kinds of loans. I will say this, I would like to see these kinds of loans be forgiven through bankruptcy, that be an option. Uh, I think that was a mistake that Congress made that this could not be forgiven, uh, just like any other loan. But I think we shouldn't stop. Like, I, I don't think forgiveness is right, because now you're expecting other people who never had to take out that loan, you're expecting them to repay it. And that's also not fair to them. I would be open to loan forgiveness only if we are tying it with substantial reforms to the student lending system. Essentially, we w- we wouldn't keep the system going as it is. We would cut it off. We would try to find out why these problems are even occurring, what's driving these issues and make sure that it doesn't happen again, especially for future borrowers. But I don't, we're introducing a lot of risk and it's a slippery slope when we're just a lot, we're just forgiving loans here because then we're going to open up the conversation to, okay, let's forgive uh, loans on mortgages or, or on houses. Let's forgive loans for your credit card debt. And we don't necessarily allow that there too, but I, I think this has to be uh, fixed. Which is a devil's advocate question. I'm not going to ask you because the answer is monetary collapse. But if people are getting PPP, if Ukraine's getting hundred billion, we're giving millions of dollars to Taiwan. Why can't I have $250,000? Come on. I think the, the <laughs> difference with the PPP loans is that that's an economic system. If, if our businesses are failing, then everybody else suffers. Whereas if you have the student loan, and this might sound a little insensitive, but it's affecting you, like personally you. It's not going to cause an economic collapse. So I think that's the big difference here. So if con- does, Congress does not, so what is the problem with just like wiping this out and making it a stimulus package, right? Like Congress and the federal government will back these loans. It, it, what is the, not just the moral problem? That's not the question because I agree with you that, look, you sign the documents, I sign the documents, I've got to pay this back, right? I agree with you on bankruptcy. But 
what is the functional utilitarian argument almost for not wiping all of these loans out that have gotten crazy big other than the trade-off of helping the universities does the federal government not actually back these loans and would it collapse banks and institutions or we simply lose more money and let's let's think about it this way taxpayers are expecting these the, the funds to be returned. They're not expecting to lose it. So it's a bait and switch. It's like you make a promise and then you break it. So I think that's the big problem here. It's not just a moral issue. This is also a very costly issue. I think there's a lot of, some people might say, well, the government actually benefits from issuing these loans. They're profiting off of it. That's not true. The government has lost $200 billion from the federal student lending system in general since the 1990s. This is not a profitable system. It's not an efficient system as it is run right now. Okay, so let's talk about the actual problem that needs to be solved, which is what? (laughs) I would say first, we need to make sure that when we are lending student loans, we want to make sure that it's going to those who would make, not only they're making the most use of it, but they're actually able to repay their loans. And that's why I do think, I've been advocating for this for a while, but we really need to tie lending, student loan lending to the economic returns of a degree and academic academic ability here. We want to make sure that the students who do get this assistance are able to complete school. And then when they graduate, they're actually entering fields where they, they have a good return on investment. So I think that's a big thing here. Right now, the SAFE program particularly introduces a lot of perverse incentives for a variety of, group of, variety of groups here. It's a safety net for low-paying fields. The entire point of federal assistance here is supposed to help students, especially those who don't have a lot, to uh, improve their financial... Yeah, the argument, oh, you take out these loans, but it's an investment in your future. So you're it's buying knowledge because you'll earn three times more, which is all the nonsense I heard when I was in high school. Take out loans, go to college, then you'll make $60,000 when you get out. No, actually, it was $22,000. And I'm... It's, anyways, I'm not bitter, even though I've been <laughs> no, screwed like, as a 40-year-old by no, the economy. No, but like the, the perverse incentive here is that it's a safety net for these programs. And really, when we have federal funds involved in here, we want to make sure that students are in better financial positions than they were previously. So that's perverse incentive number one. Colleges are off the hook here. They are not held accountable at all. In fact, the fact that these subsidies exist, it's okay, we can increase our costs because we know that students can simply turn to the federal government. They're off the hook here. And again, it's shifting costs to people who did not make these decisions. It's very possible many Americans have taken out their own loans and they, they repaid them. And now they're responsible for somebody else's loan. So again, th- this isn't holding the right parties accountable. All right, Nito, you're one of my favorite Young Voices contributors. You, James Chernowski, you're all up there. I just appreciate when you're on so much, you're a fountain of knowledge. Shameless self-promotion time, where we, can we continue to learn from you? Absolutely, and I really enjoy coming on your show. It's always a pleasure. You can follow me on X, not Twitter, X. No, on this show, it's Twitter. It's on Twitter? Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, you can follow me there at N-E-T-U underscore Arnold. And to follow the work that I'm doing, you can follow, you can uh, visit the National Association of Scholars website, nis.org. 
All right. Thanks so much, Nitu. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for listening. We really appreciate your time. If you got something out of this, please share it. We thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For And thank you for listening, listener. We really do appreciate your time. And we look forward to seeing you again here on The Chris Spangle Show.